We are continuing our study of Isaiah, and tonight we move into chapter 7 of Isaiah. Chapter 7. Last time we met together, we talked about chapter 6, which is most believe that it is the call of Isaiah to become the Lord's prophet to Judah. And so Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord's glory in the temple. And that vision is the means that God uses to call Isaiah into his service, to be his spokesperson, to deliver his word. In chapter 7, really this kind of begins a new section in Isaiah. Chapter 7 through chapter 12 largely deals with King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah at this particular time. And really the central question of this whole section in Isaiah is whether or not Ahaz will trust God or whether he will trust in his own wisdom or in the ability and wisdom and power of people. And so that's really the central question is, will Ahaz trust the Lord who is almighty or will he put his hope in princes and trust them to keep him safe with all the pressures that are around him. And so chapter seven presents a really the first confrontation, personal confrontation of Isaiah with one of the kings of Judah. So Isaiah goes and appears before Ahaz and personally delivers a message to him. And the message is essentially that you need to trust the Lord. And the Lord is even offering you a sign to, to show his power and his might. But unfortunately, Ahaz has already shown that he's not willing to trust the Lord. He's already made plans and is moving toward trying to take care of things in a, in a human way using men's wisdom. And so Isaiah is sent to Ahaz the king. And, and in, this, in the midst of this passage, we see probably one of the most familiar verses in all of Isaiah, perhaps even all the Old Testament, a verse that is quoted in the New Testament and is spoken of in terms of the fulfillment of Jesus, the Messiah. And so Isaiah 7.14 says that the Lord will give a sign. And a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so we're very familiar with that verse. A lot of times, though, we're not familiar with the context in which that verse comes out of. And so I hope we can gain a little bit clearer picture of what Isaiah was uh, offering to King Ahaz in this passage. So here's just a kind of overview, broad outline of chapter 7. In verses 1 through 9, really kind of lays out the historical setting, what's going on at that particular time in Judah. And so verses 1 through 9 involve a lot of geopolitical facts, some historical markers that show us what's going on and some of the key players that are involved. And then in verses 10 through 17 is where we see through Isaiah, the Lord offer a sign to King Ahaz, a sign that will demonstrate the Lord's power and his faithfulness to his people. But Ahaz stubbornly refuses that sign. But through Isaiah, the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And we, and it's in that that we see Isaiah 7:14, the sign of the, of uh, a young boy who will be born and called Emmanuel. 
And so that's kind of a, a big overview of chapter 7. Um, so let's look at the historical setting in verses 1 through 9. And really the historical setting is a time of national crisis for Judah. And the reason why this is a time of national crisis is because you have some major powers that are moving. On, and and they're, they're plotting, they're scheming. It involves kings and nations. And all the pressure seems to be focused on Judah and King Ahaz and what he will do and how he will respond. And so in the larger picture of things, you have the Assyrian Empire. Tiglath-Pileser III is the king of Assyria at this time. We're talking about a time of a right around 735 to 734 B.C. And, and so Assyria, which had kind of been just kind of plodding along for a while, decided that it was time to start expanding again and start asserting its power and authority in the region and trying to, to grow its empire and its influence. Well, immediately to the south of Assyria is Syria, in the Bible sometimes called Elam. Um, and then also you have the northern kingdom of Israel, remember which had separated from Judah and formed its own kingdom. So don't confuse Assyria and Syria. So Assyria is the larger kind of power force at this time. And then Syria, which is centered around Damascus. And then Israel, which is uh, centered around Samaria. Those two smaller kingdoms are being threatened by Assyria from the north. And many of the commentators believe that, that what's happening right now is Syria and Israel have formed an alliance. And the, the goal of that alliance is to try to push back and withhold that, that moving threat of Assyria to the north. And so in order to, to basically ensure their southern border as well, they, they advance upon Judah in the south. And some think that it could be two reasons why they do this. One reason is they just want to assimilate Judah and all of its people and make its alliance larger. The other thought is, is that uh, Syria and Israel wanted to put pressure on Judah to join its alliance and form kind of a threefold alliance against Assyria in the north. So either of those is possible, but one thing we know for sure, and that is that Syria, Israel, and this alliance is marching on Judah in the south, King Ahaz, where Isaiah is a prophet. And so then the issue is, who is Ahaz going to trust? Is he going to trust in the Lord to protect him and, and his people from this threat? Or is he going to employ diplomacy or as one of our former presidents would say, strategery, right? Is he going to employ a diplomacy a strategy? Is he going to use geopolitical means to try to overcome this threat? And Isaiah's message is to Ahaz, you need to trust the Lord. So that's kind of the, the historical setting for this. So you have this threat of the Israel-Syria alliance. Sometimes this 
this battle is called the Syro-Ephraimite War, 735 to 734 B.C. And we've already kind of mentioned some of these key, key figures. You've got Tiglath-Pileser III in Assyria. He's the king of this larger empire. You have Rezin, who is the king of Syria at the time in Damascus. And then you have Pekah, who is the king of Israel at this time, the northern kingdom that split off from the, the line of David. And then you have Ahaz, who is still in the line of Davidic kings in Judah. And so you've got all of this going on, and Ahaz is feeling this pressure kind of from all sides. And what Ahaz had already determined to do is to take the human route and to try to use um, strategy and diplomacy. And he had already sent some emissaries kind of making an end run around Israel and Syria up to the main power, Tiglath-Pileser III, and sent him some money, some, uh, some gifts, saying, hey, we won't ally ourselves with Syria and Israel as long as you don't attack us, and as long as you protect us from them. We'll essentially become your vassal, your slave, if you uh, provide protection for us. So Ahaz had already taken the human route, but Isaiah is coming to tell him that's a mistake. You need to trust in the Lord. And so verse 1 says, When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, that's um, Syria, and then Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now, the house of David was told, Aram, that is Syria, has allied itself with Ephraim, that is Israel. Sometimes in the scriptures, especially in the prophets, the northern kingdom of Israel will as a whole be called Ephraim. And the reason for that is Ephraim, one of the 12 tribes, had kind of taken on a dominant role in, in Israel, in the 10 northern tribes. And so sometimes Israel as a whole is referred to as Ephraim. So Aram and Ephraim are Syria and Israel. So They've allied themselves together, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So you can, they've got fear. They feel threatened by this alliance. Then the Lord said to Uzziah, go out, you and your son, Shear Jashub, and uh, this this is one of Isaiah's sons that's named in the book of Isaiah. And pretty much all of his sons have a prophetic meaning, a meaning that is significant to the context. And the name Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. And so even the name of his son is kind of looking forward to events that are going to unfold, that, that Judah is going to be conquered, they're going to go into exile, but a remnant is going to return a remnant is going to be replanted in the land. And his, the name of his son reflects that. So God says to Isaiah, take your son, go to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. So go find Ahaz, meet him. And I want, to, I want you to give him a message. Say to him, be careful. That's a good word of advice, isn't it? Especially if you're a king and you're being threatened with war. But any time that you face a choice between trusting the Lord 
or not trusting the Lord, this is a good message. Be careful. Because this is, a, this is an opportunity to move forward in your faith. This is an opportunity to falter in your faith. So be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. So you need to have the opposite reaction that you're having right now. You're, you're, in, you're afraid. You're trembling because of this threat from Syria and Israel. But the Lord's message to you is don't be afraid. Why? Because these two guys, they're not really much of anything to speak of. These don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. In other words, these two kings, Rezin and Pekah, Syria and Israel, don't fear them. They're just the remnants of a fire that's already been put out. You ever picked up a, a, a piece of stick that's already been in the fire and it's already been burned, smoldered, and you pick it up, how strong is that? It's not very strong, is it? A lot of times it just crumbles and falls apart. And that's kind of the image that is portrayed here. These guys, they seem real strong. They seem real stable. They, they, they speak a lot of bluster, and they put forth a lot of uh, prideful words. But really, there's not much to them. And, and they're not going to last very long. That's the message that Isaiah is sending to Ahaz. Don't be afraid of them. They're just, they're just these smoldering stubs, these, these sticks that have already been burned and are fragile. And it's interesting that he refers to Pekah not by his name, but by the name of his father. Doesn't even call him by name. Says he's just the son of Remaliah. It's kind of a, a backhanded insult, if you will. So it kind of degrades even his position as the king of Israel. It kind of pictures him as a usurper or someone who doesn't really belong. So don't be afraid of these of these men. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son, again, doesn't even mention him by name. Remaliah's son, they've plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. And not much is known about who this uh, son of Tabeel is, but... The idea is that it's someone probably from Israel, someone who is not of the true Davidic line that would be loyal to Israel and to Syria and this alliance. And so basically they would put in a puppet king over Judah and remove Ahaz and the whole dynasty of David. So that's their plan. But God says through Isaiah, don't, don't worry about what they're planning. It's not going to succeed. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. That's pretty clear, isn't it? God is coming to Ahaz through Isaiah and saying, here's what you need to know. This threat, all of their words of what they're going to do to you, how they're going to conquer you, how they're going to replace you as king with some other puppet king, it is not going to happen. This is the word of the Lord. Don't fear. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. In other words, just this, this little guy that you don't have to worry about. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. Now, if we are talking about 735, roughly B.C., 
in 13 years, 722 BC, Assyria, remember the, the big guys to the north, they're going to come down and take Israel captive and bring them back to Assyria and, and basically force them to assimilate and scatter across all of the Assyrian Empire. It's not clear what, what special event happens at 65 years from this point. Because the, uh, the, the major thing that happens is in 722 BC with Assyria conquering Israel and taking them into captivity in the north. Perhaps it's, it's a, a symbolic term to refer to maybe a, a, a lifespan in that, you know, one lifespan, one reign of a king, what, whatever it is, it, it, it's this country that you're so afraid of, it's not even going to exist anymore. And perhaps the idea is that by this time, after 722 BC, when they're taken captive, they're so scattered among the Assyrians that you can't even identify them as a people anymore. And that could be the idea of the 65 years. But regardless, the message is this, they're not going to last long. They seem strong now, but they're not going to be around very long. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, the guy he won't even name, Pekah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. That's really the central message of this text is, will you believe, will you trust in the Lord? And if you will not trust in the Lord, then you're going to be defeated and you're going to fall. And so the, the central theme is faith, trust in the Lord and not putting our trust in princes, but trusting in Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth. So that's kind of the historical background. Enemies coming, Ahaz is afraid. God sends Isaiah to tell him, you don't need to be afraid because this is not going to happen. So trust the Lord. Don't trust people, trust the Lord. So that's the historical setting. Verses 10 through 17 then, kind of the rest of the section is about the sign that um, Isaiah offers to King Ahaz. He offers him a sign from the Lord. Ahaz stubbornly refuses, but the Lord gives it anyway. So in verses 10 through 13, we have the offering of the sign and then Ahaz refusing it. So verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, and we assume that this is through Isaiah, the prophet. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. That is an incredibly gracious offer, isn't it? Oftentimes, the Lord, and we even see this in the New Testament with uh, the Lord Jesus when he comes, and people, unbelieving people, doubting, skeptical people, ask him for a sign. Even though Jesus has already been doing numerous miracles and works, they continue to ask him for a sign. Give us another sign. Show us who you really are. And Jesus says, an evil generation seeks for a sign. So sometimes in scripture, seeking for a sign is not uh, held up as what faith is all about. But here is the Lord, not, not being prompted by Ahaz, but the Lord offering himself. I'm offering to give you a sign to strengthen your faith. So Ahaz appears very wobbly here, shaky. 
And so God is being gracious to him saying, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm offering this to you. Anything that you want, that, that's, a, that's an incredible offer. Anything in the highest heaven that you can imagine, anything in the deepest, deepest depth, the lowest hole that you can imagine, the greatest abyss, the deepest part of the sea, and everything in between. Anything that you want, the Lord will give it to you as a sign to show you that the Lord's word is true and the Lord is powerful and that he is not going to allow this to happen. But here's what Ahaz says. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And it comes across as very pious, doesn't it? Uh, I'm not going to trouble the Lord. Uh, I don't want to... I don't want to impose upon the Lord. I don't want to presume upon the Lord. I don't want to put him to the test and say, Lord, you've got to prove yourself to me by this sign. And so it it comes off sounding very pious and spiritual. But the problem is, is that it was in direct obstinance to the offer that the Lord had just made. And so here's the Lord's word through Isaiah. I'm offering you a sign. Ask for a sign. I want you to ask for a sign. And really kind of in false piety, Ahaz says, no, I'm I'm not going to test the Lord. So here's what Isaiah says. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? That shows you that the Lord was not happy with Ahaz's refusal to ask for a sign. So the Lord offers him a sign, anything powerful, supernatural. And he says, no, I don't want to test the Lord. And the Lord says, you're just stubborn. You're stubborn. You're unbelieving. Then the Lord says, I'm going to offer you a sign anyway. And that's the context of Isaiah 7:14. So all of this political turmoil, threats, violence, enemies, armies coming, fear, the Lord saying, don't be afraid. I'm going to offer you a sign. Ahaz says, no, I don't want a sign. The Lord says, I'm going to give you one anyway. Here's the sign, the birth of Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't want one, but the Lord's going to give one. Here's a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Who is this he here? Apparently, it's this this child, Emmanuel. So this child who was born, who was named Emmanuel, that's the closest, the closest antecedent is in verse 14, the child. So he'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And then verse, so here's the issue in verses 14 through 16 is Isaiah says a virgin is going to conceive and have a son. She's going to give birth to that son and she's going to give him this name, which is a very significant meaning to that name, isn't it? God with us. And, and at that time in Judah, that was a powerful message of hope, wasn't it? Here is, here is this, they're, they're afraid. They're fearful of all of this that's happening around them. They fear that they're going to be conquered. They're going to be overthrown. 
And so no greater hope could be given than God is among you. God is with you. So here's the sign. This young child is going to be born. Name him Emmanuel, God with us. And then it talks about this young boy growing up. And growing up and being able to eat on his own, which suggests some kind of, some years of maturity there. And then also the ability to determine right from wrong, which determine, which suggests at least a few years of, of maturity. Some have even suggested, you know, like maybe bar mitzvah age, 12, 13, where someone becomes a son of the law, choosing between right and wrong. Um, but the message is before this boy knows enough to reject the right and the wrong, these two nations that you dread will be laid waste. So here's the issue is, is Isaiah referring to something near in fulfillment that's going to happen in Ahaz's lifetime that he can see? in which he will be able to see these two nations laid waste, as verses 15 and 16 talk about? Or is he talking about something far future, as the New Testament, when it quotes Isaiah seven fourteen, it applies it to Jesus, right? Jesus is this, Emmanuel, God with us. So keep that in your mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But let's look at verse 17, the last verse of the passage. Because verse 17 lays out the, there are repercussions for Judah, however. So Ahaz, because you did not trust me, because you decided to handle this on your own, because you did not ask for a sign to show you how strong I am, there are going to be repercussions. So the Lord is going to bring on you and on your people, on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will be the king of Assyria. So in other words, the person that you put your hope in, the king of Assyria, remember you sent gifts to him and, and you, you wanted to uh, get his help. By the way, Second Kings describes this. Ahaz seeking this help. Second Kings describes that. And so the Lord is saying there are going to be repercussions for your lack of faith. And that is that the very person that you sought help from is going to oppress you. So there are repercussions for lack of faith. Now, back to the issue of Isaiah 7.14. There are various interpretations of Isaiah 7.14 in its context. And a lot of it surrounds the meaning of a key word in Isaiah 7.14. And I can't tell you how many pages and pages and pages of argument and articles and books have been written about the meaning of this word and its significance in Isaiah 7.14. The, um, the Hebrew word is Alma. And the question is this, does this Hebrew word Alma refer to someone who is technically a virgin or does it or is it used more broadly to refer to perhaps a young woman of marriageable age so that's kind of the debate is 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 this technically talking about someone who is still technically a virgin or is this talking about just a young woman 
who is of marriageable age, perhaps just recently married. And the issue in that is this. Are we talking about a supernatural sign here? Or are we talking about something that could happen in normal everyday events? So let me, let me explain it this way. Some would say that if we're talking about virgin, this is technically a virgin, then what has to happen then is a, someone who is still technically a virgin has to give birth to a child. Well, we only know of that happening one time in the history of the world, right? And that's with Mary giving birth to Jesus. But those who would say, no, look at the way that this word is used in different places in the Old Testament. And they would point to, for example, in Genesis, Rebecca being called this same word. Just, it's a young woman, and it's used in more broader contexts. And so they would say, no, this is just talking about a young woman who gets married and has a child by ordinary means. And the significance then is the name that is given. That is the significance of the sign, is in the name that is given. So that's kind of your, your debate over what this word means. Interestingly enough, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, say about 200 to 100 B.C., somewhere in there, the, the Greek Septuagint uses a term in translating Alma, it uses a term that is more precise, that is technically a virgin, not just a young woman. So many will point to that and say that there, there they understand the force of the passage and the Greek translators of the Septuagint who translated the Old Testament, they see that this is intended to communicate some supernatural miracle here. So that's where the debate is surrounded around, around this meaning of this word and how it fits in the context. So you basically have three views. View one is that Isaiah's words find their fulfillment only in Jesus. So this, this prophecy has to do only with the distant future. And as Matthew says, this is to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You will call him Emmanuel. And so they would say this is, this is only talking about Jesus. There's no near referent at all. A second view is the prophecies of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah chapter 8 are linked in, in, the, in the sense that they may be essentially talking about the same event. Well, in chapter 8, and we'll look at this more here next week or two, but in chapter 8, it is talking about Isaiah marrying a woman and having a son, and the name that they give him is different, but some of the other language about him growing up and certain things happening before he grows up, some of that language is very similar to what we saw in Isaiah chapter 7. So some would say it's, it's two passages, they're kind of like mirror passages, and they're describing the same event. Which if that's the case, then it's going to be something in the near future, right? To Isaiah's time and to King Ahaz's time. And then there's a third view, and that is that the woman that, that is being referred to here is already with child. And so it's not talking about something future at all, but a woman is with child, a young woman is with child, but she's going to give birth to a son and when she gives birth to the son, she's going to call him Emmanuel, God with us, with 
all the emphasis being on the meaning of the name and its significance for that time. That Ahaz, you don't have enough faith to trust God, but this woman has enough faith to trust God because she's going to name her son God with us. So those are three different views of this. Um, Probably the view that I would take, and here's kind of where we're going to conclude and relate it to the New Testament, is clearly the New Testament writers understood Jesus as somehow linked and fulfilling these words of Isaiah, right? In chapter seven. So I believe it has to, in some sense, point to Jesus, refer to him. But I think we also have to wrestle with the original context in which it appears that something is about to transpire close to Isaiah's time. Something that Ahaz can see. Because what would the significance be of Isaiah giving Ahaz this reassurance. By the time this young boy grows up and he's able to tell the difference between right and wrong, before that happens, then Syria and Israel are going to be no more. Now, if that's only talking about Jesus, then Isaiah is telling Ahaz something that's not going to happen for over 700 years. How, how is that going to be assigned to him? And that, that doesn't seem to be much of a comfort at the moment, does it? that these, these nations that you're so concerned about that are threatening you, they're going to be gone in 700 plus years. No, I think that the passage is pointing towards something more near than that. that. That really within just a short time, that by the time this young boy is born, which is maybe just around the corner in Isaiah's day, and he grows up a few years and he's able to tell the difference between right and wrong, that these nations are going to be no more. By the way, this is just a thought too, but if this is 735, 734 BC, and we're talking about the birth of a child that's about to happen, and let's say that he is able to tell the difference between right or wrong, say around bar mitzvah age of 12 or 13 years old, that puts us right around 722 BC when Israel falls to Assyria. And the nation is no more. So how do we reconcile these two things? I think we have to reconcile them through biblical theology, which through biblical theology, the biblical writers are able to see that events may be fulfilled in more than one aspect. So uh, we can see a near fulfillment in which uh, this, this child is born and, and within the span of 12 or 13 years, Israel and and Syria, their threat, it's gone. But that this also points to something greater, right? And I think it has to point to something greater because Isaiah tells King Ahaz, ask for a sign as high as the heavens above or as deep as the the deepest depths. A woman having a son and naming him something, uh, that's not much of a sign, is it? But a technical virgin having a son, that's, that's a miraculous sign. So to me, they, they have to, it has to point to both. It has to point to something near of significance to Isaiah's time and something that King Ahaz would see unfolding as a fulfillment of the word of the Lord. But clearly from Matthew and Paul in the New Testament, there is something grander that, it's pointing to as well. 
which is only fulfilled in Jesus, in a supernatural virgin birth of Jesus coming into the world and being God with us, right? John says, John 1.14, that this word, this divine word, he took on flesh and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He was God with us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I think think there's a twofold fulfillment, near and far. And there are many scriptures in the prophets that that can work that way, that that can have a near-term, at least partial fulfillment, but then also a farther-term, grander fulfillment. 